Tell Show. Welcome back. I'm Andrew Donaldson. So glad you're joining us on this Tuesday, April the 19th year of our Lord 2022 just continues to roll along. Man, April's almost gone. Boy, this year's going quick already. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street around the world. A little bit different program today. Uh, we're going to have on two people that we're going to talk to. One is a returning guest who we've had before, Cassandra Shan, uh, going to talk a little bit about Pakistan. Uh, and India, we talked about yesterday uh, with our friend uh, Georgia Gilholy, uh, the importance of India. You can't talk about India without Pakistan. So today, Cassandra Shand returns, going to talk a little Pakistan, how that fits in the geopolitical realm, things that are going on over there. They just set aside their leader, Imran Khan, who was forced out of power. What does that mean? A lot to go on, kind of a crossroads of a lot of different cross streams in geopolitics. We're going to talk a little Pakistan today. Now, we've always told you that this is an interactive program. You talk, we listen. When we talk, if you don't listen, we don't have a program. No point. We'd be talking to thin air. Longtime subscriber, longtime supporter of this program from the very beginner, uh, good Twitter buddy for a long time. Our friend Holden reached out. He wanted to push back on the way we were covering some of the transgender issues, both sports related and things like the law in Florida, things like this. Uh, he wanted to push back on it. I said, why don't you come on the show and talk about it? He agreed to. So he's going to be on the program today. Our buddy Holden talking a little bit about some of the issues with transgender things in the news, things like sports issues, things like rights, things like uh, we talked about the bill out in Utah that governor talking about how to deal with these issues with respect to everybody and where rights start and stop and where harm starts and stops. Our buddy Holden will be on the program in just a little bit. We're also going to finish the program out with a really cool story. Uh, this is about the fourth or fifth one of these we've done, but these really big, massive online games can raise a lot of money in a hurry. In this case, it's Fortnite, the very popular video game has raised over $100 million for Ukraine. We will talk about that in the program. Uh, but first, uh, we're going to talk about Alex Jones. Now, why do we want to talk about Alex Jones? He is a despicable human being. He is the worst of the worst when it comes to people in media. But that's why I want to talk about him. He's the absolute antithesis and the opposite of what we want the Herd Tell program to be. In fact, people like Jones, uh, although he's the extreme example, is kind of why we started doing this in the first place. We talk about turning down the noise. We talk about talking to people that actually know what they're talking about. We talk about getting good information and not getting sucked into the silliness and the nonsense. That's not only what Alex Jones does. That's what he monetizes. And that's how he makes his money. And he's a bad person because he peddles in conspiracy theories that he knows aren't true. He said so in court under oath when he really got pressed on it. And he stirs up the worst parts of humanity and the worst parts of people against each other, against our country, and he monetizes it and makes money off it. Now, we're not against people making money, but if you're doing it off ill-gotten gains, we're going to call you out on it. So there's been news about uh, Alex Jones. He has filed for bankruptcy. Three different companies that he controls, this is from CNN, tied to Alex Jones, including his fringe media organization, InfoWars, that's his flagship 
show are seeking bankruptcy protection, according to court documents filed on Sunday. The move, which could pause civil litigation against the companies, comes after Jones was found legally responsible for damages in three defamation lawsuits related to false claims he made about the 2012 Sandy Hook mass shooting. If you remember, this is where he said they were crisis actors. It didn't really happen, blah, 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 blah. Now, under oath in court, he admitted it happened, but this is what he peddles his audience uh, for riches and glory. Again, despicable human being. The type of bankruptcy filing the company made is one that would allow it to stay in business. The Infowars store has been particularly lucrative. This is where he sells his merchandise. In a 2019 deposition, Jones's father, who operated much of the business, estimated, quote, something like 80% of revenue was probably from the Infowars store sales. Citing court documents, the Huffington Post reported in 2022 that over a three-year period from 2015 to 2018, the Infowars store did $165 million in sales. Let's pause there real quick and check in with what's going on over at InfoWars today. Business Insider, uh, switching gears. That was CNN. This is Business Insider. Far-right talk show host Alex Jones is holding a bonanza sale of products on his InfoWars store after the site filed for bankruptcy on Monday. Hmm. We just read about the store. Following the filing, Jones announced on his show that a, quote, emergency blowout sale had gone live on his Infowars store, telling his audience to patronize the store to support him. Quote, this is Jones talking. You want us to be able to stay on the air and be able to move forward in the future. I need you now to not wait and go to the Infowarsstore.com. Jones said, please don't go to that store. Please don't give this cretin a dime. Especially, back to Jones's direct quotes, those of you who have never bought a book, never bought a film, never bought a T-shirt, never got a supplement, never got an air filtration, never got water filtration, thousands of great items, books, you name it, at InfoWarsStore.com, Jones says. He also pointed the supporters to a button on the site that would allow one to become a, quote, sponsor, which would involve a monthly or one-time donation. Quote, this is do or die time if you want to keep us on the air, Jones said. They are trying to silence you. They are trying to take down the leading voice of the resistance. Uh, so what's really going on here? Uh, this is really clear cut. He's trying to hide his assets and make as much money as possible to get around these judgments. Let's back up about a week ago, back on April the 8th, Will Summers uh, in the Daily Beast. Will Summers does a lot of coverage of the fringe right groups. He wrote this, and this will give us the context of what the despicable Alex Jones is really trying to pull off here. In a court motion filed Wednesday in Texas, remember this is back on April the 8th, so this is over a week ago, the Sandy Hook families claimed that he was concealing InfoWars assets to make the company appear to be nearly bankrupt. Hmm. The families were joined in a motion by another man suing Jones for falsely accusing him of carrying out the 2018 Parkland shooting, which he also said was fake. The filing was first posted online by Courthouse News. On paper, InfoWars parent company Free Speech System seems to lose money every year. Yet Jones has allegedly transferred significant amounts out of the company, fiscal transactions that often coincide with legal setbacks Jones has faced in the Sandy Hook cases. After the family sued him in 2018, for example, Jones allegedly started personally withdrawing a total of $18 million from the free speech system bank account over three years, along with drawing an annual $600,000 salary. By the way, we know a lot of this stuff because he had a really messy and public divorce case, and a lot of these financials came out. So th this isn't just speculation. We, we've got a pretty good handle on these things. Uh, back to Will Summers and Daily Beast. Remember, this is over a week ago before this current filing. Many of the sus suspicious transfers centered on a mysterious company called PQ 
PR, which the plaintiffs claimed is controlled by Jones and his family members. Shortly after Jones lost his last appeal to block the defamation case in Texas, PQPR claimed that free speech system owed it $54 million, which just happened to coincide with the bulk of InfoWars's assets. Huh? Hello? Free speech systems began transferring its money to PQPR, then on a series of shell corporations controlled by other Jones family members, according to the motion. While the payments were ostensibly made to pay off the hefty $54 million in areas, a debt PQPR hadn't bothered to enforce in seven years during which InfoWar racked up tens of millions in supposed debt. The plaintiffs say this was just a scheme to shelter InfoWar's assets in an alphabet soup of shell entities. Their transfers designed to siphon off Jones's asset and make them judgment-proof lawyers allege the debt payments accelerated after a Texas judge ruled before trial that Jones had lost his case, an unusual step taken because Jones repeated violations of other legal rules. He, he's still in contempt of court in some of these actions, by the way. Since that ruling, the plaintiffs say free speech system has paid PQPR. What do we tell you? Over and over again on this program, when you're seeking for truth and you're dealing with money, Follow the money. It's going to get you pretty close to the truth. The truth is Alex Jones has made millions, tens of millions of dollars hawking lies, hawking conspiracy theories, hawking the worst of humanity to the slice of humanity who wants to gobble that stuff up with a straw and suck it down and process it and revel in it. He got rich doing it. And now because his mouth shot himself off and now he's in legal trouble, he wants to try to hide those assets from legal judgments that had it coming to him because of what he did. This is all a shell game. He's trying to hide his assets and he's continuing to lie so he can peddle with one hand to his members all this merchandise stuff, which is his mainstream of income. And on the other hand, he's trying to claim poverty to the people that he's going to owe money, both through legal means and otherwise. This is the classic bait and switch of every con man in history, whether it's charlatans peddling fake gospel preaching or a major company or a Ponzi scheme or Alex Jones. It's always the same. They're always broke. They always need your help. You're the real victim. They're just your avatar. Look how they're picking on me. Give me more money. At the same time, they're sliding money out the back door to make sure that they're taken care of while you get left holding the bag. I hope this does not work. I hope the court system sorts this out. There seems to be some pretty good reporting. Should be easy enough to get a chain of evidence for either civil or criminal litigation in this area. I hope Jones goes dead broke. He's already morally bankrupt. His bank account should match it. More hotel right after this. Welcome back to Her Tell. Oh, she's back. Uh, our friend Cassandra Shamp. She's from our Young Voices contributor stable of really sharp folks. Uh, she has a degree, master's public policy from the University of Chicago. Uh, just because that wasn't enough, she went over to Cambridge, got another degree. Really sharp person. We've had her on before. Welcome back, Cassandra. Good to see you again. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, as per usual, when you're on, we're going to talk a little bit about some goings on overseas. 
Uh, we've been talking a lot about Russia and Ukraine, but there's some stuff going on just to the southeast of that that we need to pay attention to. A country that has been very important to American foreign policy for the last 25, 30 years, but we don't always talk about it because it's in the background. Pakistan made its way into the headlines this past week. Um, the the, the uh, removal of Imran Khan as the prime minister. Let's start big picture, though. Why is Pakistan such uh, of strategic interest and geopolitical importance to the United States and more pressingly, India, China, Russia? They're surrounded by a lot of heavy hitters in what's going on in the world right now, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. They, uh, they definitely uh, they're very involved in, with a bunch of different countries. Um, I'd say first, China. China um, China is trying to extend an economic corridor from Pakistan to Afghanistan, kind of as part of like a BRI measure, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. So that kind of directly counters American interests there. Pakistan did not vote to remove um, Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. So they've, uh, this is before Khan left office. But um, definitely there, we kind of see that uh, they're still kind of favoring Russia. Pakistan does not like India. There was no bilateral relationship between uh, India and Pakistan during Khan's tenure. Um, and yeah, uh, Pakistan's current like friendliness with the U.S. China is their, prim- is their primary strategic partner. Um, the U.S. is, there's definitely a lot of anti-American sentiment there with the ruling officials. They did not want the U.S. to put any sort of base or have any sort of CIA presence at all whatsoever in Pakistan. Um, and so, yeah, the, the current status quo is that the U.S. is a little anxious about um, what Pakistan is thinking, which way it's going to go. And I think with the uh, ousting of Khan, um, we could see a movement in either direction. Now, there's a couple other things at play here while we get nervous about Pakistan. They have nuclear weapons. They are perpetually in a shooting war with India over the Kashmir region. They have very complicated and longstanding ties to Russia. Uh, going all the way back through the Soviet years. We know about their constant involvement and, frankly, uh, being a major player in our own role in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. You can go all the way back to uh, harboring bin Laden, all the way through to the downfall of Afghanistan, where a lot of those guys went to Pakistan, then came back. Uh, There's a lot of stuff to sort through here. But in the near term, uh, does America even have a coherent policy towards Pakistan right now? Because it sure seems like it's been kind of slapdash. And then this kind of caught a lot of people off guard. Obviously, we're paying attention to other things, and America's a little bit isolationist in mood right now. Do we have a current, like, if I just ask the normal uh, pol- politico in America, what's our standing policy towards Pakistan? Does anybody have a coherent answer? Um, I don't think they'd have one, actually, no. Um, I think right now we've got, we've got this massive pivot towards Asia. So that's where a lot of our resources um, pre-Ukraine crisis were allocated. Now we have Ukraine and Russia. Now we're kind of focusing a little bit on Europe again. But as far as like, the whole uh, Pakistan-Afghanistan area, we've, we've largely moved out. I think our main concern with Pakistan kind of has to do um, also with its neighbor, India. Um, India is part of the Quad. Um, it's, it's a major strategic ally of ours, but right now India is kind of being weird. Like, I mean, they're also kind of courting Russia at the same time. So I think if anything, um, anyone who discusses Pakistan might be like, oh, what about India too? Um, I think there's a lot of like precarity right now in that area. But as we kind of previously discussed, like nothing happens in isolation. Pakistan is heavily involved with other countries that we're very, very uh, concerned about, namely China. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, 
I don't think we really have a coherent strategy. I think it's more just like Pakistan is involved with so many different players that it's hard to kind of keep track. Talk about that quad for just a second, because that's a term talking to Cassandra Shan. That's a term that uh, our Australian friends have been talking about a lot. Our Southeast Asia friends, they're very apparent. That's not something that gets talked about in Western media, parent, and especially American media, even in policy circles. They don't talk about it. But that's something our friends over on that side of the world, they talk about it constantly. It's an important topic to them. Just real quick, explain. I know you mentioned the countries. Explain the quad and why that's so important. Um, yeah, so the quad is our current defensive alliance in kind of like the the Pacific area. We have uh, Japan, we have Australia, we have uh, India and the U.S., it's kind of like our main fortress against anything that happens it, around Australia, around the South China Sea. That's kind of where all of our efforts are focused, through the quad at least. That's what the quad focuses on. We do a lot of military engagements with them, military exercises. The quad was kind of one of the underlying reasons we had like the AUKUS agreement, which was kind of like this now, like a, the US and UK working together to get Australian the Australians and nuclear submarines. But yeah, the quad, at least, I think uh, it definitely is a, is a major uh, alliance in that area. And it's uh, I, I think it's more fragile right now than it has been as of late, at least with these new, um, new conflicts in Ukraine and India's like uh, continuous uh, kind of like, oh, what are we going to do? India's kind of like a lack of decisiveness as to whether they want to go on the American side or the Russian side, even though we have an agreement with them. So yeah, I think that's more of an American issue rather than anything else personally, but we'll continue our conversation with Cassandra Shand, a young voices contributor. Her tale continues right after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. And anytime you're talking Pakistan and foreign policy, they're, they're attached to the hip with India because of the longstanding conflicts. Uh, you have a classic culture there. You have a clash of religion there. You have a lot of history, some really ugly recent history, even uh, not just Kashmir, just in general. The part of the problem with India is, and and I actually kind of feel sorry for them in this current conflict, their military system, a lot of their infrastructure stuff, that's all Russian made and Russian 
uh, technology, which means you have to have Russian replacement parts, both militarily and things like their power grid. All that comes from Russia. So they're not really in a position to just kick Russia to the curb. It would be devastating to them. But at the same time, morally and issues like this, some ways they want to be more diplomatically aligned towards America. Yeah. And then to go to the other hand, the Mahdi government uh, has had some human rights issues of late. We give them a hard time on that. Russia does not. So that I don't know how you even keep up with what India is doing. When Pakistan looks at a, let, let's be generous here and call them a frenemy. When they, they're looking at India on their border, they don't see stability. They see Russia, which has been a longtime frenemy to them as well as a good term to use. They're mm-hmm. tied up in Ukraine and it's not looking good. If I'm Pakistan, to be fair to them, I'm looking at China and going, you're, you're about the only person in the room that I can halfway trust here, right? Um, yeah, I definitely think that's a good way of looking at it. I see that same mentality applies for us, right, with respect to India. Um, I think that, I mean, there's ways to kind of show like some tacit support for um, Russia without being so... Uh, so blatant about their intentions. Like for instance, like right now, India has like a $2 billion export agreement with Russia after uh, everyone's kind of condemned Russia, all this stuff. That's a, that's a major signal to the rest of the world that India is a partner or still intends to be a partner with Russia. Um, on our side, right. Um, the, what do they call it? The S 400 missiles. Um, we sanction China, we sanction Turkey for, um, for, um, receiving imports of uh, this like kind of like rocket missile defense system um, from Russia. And we do the, do the same for India. India has them. We never condemned them whatsoever. We never, we used, we saw them as an ally. We're like, okay, okay, whatever. It's like, we'll ignore it this time. And now um, we're in a situation where uh, India is kind of playing both sides. And it's, it's looking kind of scary for us, at least with like our existing security commitments. Yeah. There was a wink, wink, nudge, nudge about, uh, well, about two, three years ago, it became a big deal. The Trump administration did the right thing and kind of looked the other way and let them buy these systems from Russia because, again, their entire military is based off of the Russian system. We're slowly trying to get them onto ours, but that's not going to happen overnight. There's a lot of infrastructure there. We, we, did, yeah. the, we, we did a bad thing that was the right thing there because it would, have, it would have been devastating to their defense. But coming back to Pakistan for a second, talking militarily, Kind of the unique thing about Pakistan here, and Imran Khan found this out the hard way, they have elections, they have political parties. Um, Obviously, it's a strong Islamic country in a lot of ways, but the military still runs that country. And Imran Khan found out the hard way. Uh, Shabazz Sharif's coming into power. We'll see what his relationship is with the military. But that's the dynamic that you have to talk about in dealing with Pakistani politics, which good, bad or indifferent, since they got nukes and they got a lot of enemies. Mm -hmm. The military is what runs Pakistan. How does that change the calculus where, yeah, it's an elected official, but underneath it, if the military don't like you, that's who's really got the power in the country. There are some allegations that Khan got into office because he was kind of on the side of the military. And I think that I'm kind of inclined to think that's actually correct. I think that. uh, the military is pretty active in suppressing any opposition from other parties. And then I don't know what happened, but I guess uh, the military changed its mind and you have these uh, strong opposition leaders, um, now Sharif. Um, and yeah, the military definitely is a major, major, major player in Pakistan. And it's a, uh, it's very, it's very structured. Um, it's like, uh, at least like with, from what my Pakistani friends explained to me, it's very much like, 
if, if you work in the military, you work hard in the military, that is a very honorable like pathway to success. It's a very rich hierarchy and it's very well respected in the military in, in Pakistan. So um, I think it's like if you change the military's control over Pakistan, you have to change kind of the cultural dynamics around the military as well. Um, and yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a, a hard uh, goal to accomplish. Yeah, I'm talking to Cassandra Shan about going on in Pakistan. Okay. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about Shabazz Sharif. He's a, a steel magnet from a, a long dynastic family. He seems on the surface like there would be some stability here, at least for the moment. What do we make of Pakistan? Again, everybody's attention in the world dynamic is on Russia and Ukraine for obvious reasons. There, One of the problems I'm concerned about, and you do foreign policy, so you tell me, there's no version of this Russian conflict with Ukraine where Russia doesn't come out of it weaker and looking more vulnerable, there's a lot of flashpoints that Russian overlording, for lack of a better word, has kind of kept them tapped down. There's a lot of old grievances. Is there a concern that some of these things would start flashing up and in places like Pakistan, like Kashmir, there's a lack of influence? Uh, There could be a lot of world problems that come out of a lack of where Russia has been helping these countries like Pakistan, like India. That attentions elsewhere is there potential for more instability based out of that that's an interesting question i kind of think that i mean kind of believe that because of like the u.n human rights vote um kind of kicking off kicking off russia from the human rights council i think that the band of countries you saw grouping together um to kind of like not say anything against russia like not um um you saw like south africa you saw uh, Pakistan, um, India, you see all these countries that are, have heavily, heavy like Russian influence um, in some aspect of their government. They're all kind of taking the sideline on this issue. And I think that I think that 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 concern is shared by many other countries. And it's unlikely, to, in my opinion, for these countries to kind of like yeah, let Russian influence fall too hard in their own in their own nation. So I, I don't think much will change. And I think right now, um, the length of the war is what plays in Russia's best favor. I think that like, yeah, they might be economically shaken a little bit, but um, they're still heavily, heavily involved in Africa and uh, Pakistan and elsewhere. Yeah. So. Yeah. Talking to Cassandra Shan, uh, just to put a bow on this Pakistan thing real quick. Uh, I was kind of joking about it, but I'm serious. Uh, I don't know that we have a coherent policy towards countries like Pakistan. I, I think the Biden administration has shown that they're more on optics than policy right now. But if we did have a coherent strategy towards a Pakistan, and again, th- these things are linked with India. We're going to talk to somebody else about India because you just you got to talk about one if you talk about the other as far as these things go. What should our policy be towards Pakistan? Is, is What would we do if we were trying to make things a little bit better and build some inroads in this very turbulent part of the world? Because we don't have a lot of cash right there. We, you know, we're still pretty embarrassed in that part of the world from the Afghanistan debacle. If we were going to try to do something good here, what would that look like? I do think that the average Pakistani citizen is concerned about um, kind of extremism in Pakistan. I think that uh, some sort of security commitments in that regard might be smart. Not not American-led, more military-led initiatives. Um, that would accrue definitely a lot of more like domestic support for any involvement with the U.S. I think that's one of the main issues we find in Pakistan. It's that like... I mean, that's what Khan's using right now. It's like, oh, like we're so scared now that like, uh, oh, Americans, um, the Americans are pulling the, street, the strings, like you don't want to be an American slave. Um, we need to fight that narrative. And I think that's the first step to achieving our policy goals in that area. Um, we also, in, in, in the best case scenario, um, we, we'd kind of be strong against Pakistan's kind of support for China. Um, 
but at the same time, um, and I'm happy you're going to have a, and I need an expert on next, on, on next, but, um, we kind of had to rectify at least a little bit, um, like Pakistan's animosity towards India if we're going to work with India as well. So it's kind of like, a it's fighting, fighting that fire, um, which is very difficult because it's been a century, a decades long dispute. So. Yeah, not a lot of good answers, but a whole lot of questions we're going to have to pay <laughs> yeah, attention to going much. forward, which means we'll keep having folks like Cassandra Shan back to talk about it. Uh, until we have you back again, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, and how to follow you on social media until we see you again on Hertel. Yeah, sure. Uh, Twitter at Cassandra Shand. Nice, easy. That's S-H-A-N-D. I learned the hard way last time I did this and I messed up the graphics. Sorry about that. Uh, but Cassandra Shand. Always fun to talk to you. Appreciate you finding the time on short notice. And uh, we always enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate you coming back. Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Okay, we always tell you, if you don't listen, we don't have anybody to talk to, and our interactions with you folks are important to us. We've done whole segments. In fact, we've done segments based off what this individual has sent to us before, and he reacted to something we had on the program, wanted to come on and talk about it. I offered. He took me up on it, and I appreciate it. He's been a friend of the program since we started it. He's been a good Twitter buddy. Uh, he is an avid fan of Meatloaf, the singer not the thing that chris christie was forced to eat uh and he's a good twitter follower follow him at holden 114 holden my friend how are you sir very good thank you andrew thank you for having me on uh anytime i appreciate the feedback okay so we were talking about uh the florida legislation and the utah legislation that was aimed at uh transgender kids you took a little bit exception uh not so much what i said kind of how i said it and the way i framed it uh, but I'll give you the floor on it. Uh, where do you think I strayed wrong on that? Or do you, where do you think we should be maybe having a more productive conversation than the way I set it up? Let me start by echoing some of yours and Governor Cox's sentiments. Obviously, this is a, a delicate subject where tensions can run very high. Um, gender dysphoria must be a difficult condition to live with. And, you know, wherever either of us stand on the issue, we should always try to keep in mind that, you know, there are human beings who struggle with this. And it's not hard for those of us on, I guess, my side to make our case while trying to avoid causing unnecessary pain to trans people who have already have um, enough to deal with. Now, having said that, these aren't the only people who need to be in this conversation. So we were talking about sports. There's the girl who goes to practice every day, you know, who wakes up early to do drills, who perhaps skips going out with friends because she has to train. And that girl has been erased from this conversation. It's like she doesn't exist. This girl sees her spot either on the winner's pedestal or perhaps the team that she was the last runner up to qualify for taken by someone who overcomes her by doing a fraction of the work that she has to do, biological makeup. 
I do feel that in this conversation, there's a bit of a stolen base when we discuss this as a matter of who has or doesn't have compassion and not as a balance of harms or interests. Now, there are, there are layers to this. I don't think accommodating transgender people has to be a all or nothing proposition. In fact, I think that both sides could you know, get a lot more done if their vocabulary was more in sync. As far as I know, it is not, it isn't offensive to say that a trans woman is biologically male. It shouldn't be problematic or inconsistent with trans rights to say that one space is designated for biological women only. And that means that it should be off limits for trans women. Of course, that then raises the question, how should we designate these spaces? How do we decide what, what belongs for a biological sex or not? Does a bathroom need to be that space? Not necessarily in my opinion, you know, bathrooms, we have segregated bathrooms mostly for the privacy and comfort of women, you know, Women don't like to find themselves alone in a private space with a strange man, and that's you know, understandable. I think this, this is more of a visceral reaction than it is perhaps a true sense of being in more danger. Uh, you know, conservatives argue that allowing trans people into the bathroom they identify with creates more danger. I don't, I'm not convinced. Uh, I don't think you know, allowing this policy is going to expand the window of opportunity for someone who has ill intent. Like I said, I have a daughter. If, if the person in the stall next to her is a man doing his business, then that doesn't, that doesn't bother me. I don't feel that she has, she has, she's in increased danger in that situation. Um, because if you look at sort of the circumstances where these kind of assaults would take place and, you know, you need isolation, you need, um, a series of circumstances that I don't see are facilitated by allowing um, transgender uh, people to use the bathroom they identify with. You get into locker rooms. Well, locker rooms are a little more complicated because then you have to, who might, who might be exploiting the policy to leer at women or something. What I'm getting at is that a lot of the pressure points in this conversation involve cultural norms and customs. We, we can, and we are, I guess, you know, nationally and as a society, we are having the debate over what we can change, what we need to keep the same, and what we can be flexible on. If I had, if I had a trans friend or coworker, I don't mind using their preferred name and pronoun because that's not something that you know I see, I see as harm to me to use that. Now there's, you can argue that there's. A little bit of harm in not being able to or being pressured to speak an untruth as you see it but you know society living in society is a daily exercise in knowing what to say out loud and what to keep to yourself for the sake of you know committee and for other people's feelings so that is not something that i think takes a lot of effort i know you're concerned about suicide rates and i would hate to think that anything i do causes someone pain or pushes them to harm themselves. So I think there is plenty that we can do to make it easier for transgender people to live in a way that comes at little cost to us. Yeah. Now, sports are another matter. There are reasons why we 
separate boys and girls in sports at all ages. And those reasons have nothing to do with your state of mind or your neurology or your psychology. They have to do with physiology. This is a space that has to be segregated by biological sex. If you, if you were able to take a female athlete and transplant her brain or her consciousness into the body of LeBron James, she would not be fit to play in the WNBA. And I will submit to you that, you know, if Leah Thomas, for example, if this Leah Thomas experiment was playing out in basketball, we would not be having this conversation because the physical disparity would be so glaring in terms of size, speed, agility, that no one watching this would think that this is a fair competition. And for all of us to pretend that it is, is infantilizing. It's, it would be a lie. And the vast majority of people watching would know that. I think it would invite more of a counter reaction against uh, trans acceptance to expect people to play along with this in, this in this case when it comes to sports. If people feel pressured that they have to applaud someone who they don't feel deserves this recognition, that's going to have negative consequences whether seen or unseen by the person who, who is playing in the game. Of course, this isn't, in, in the case of sports, you know, uh, this isn't a problem that the vast majority of the country would have to deal with. You, you mentioned that these are only four students that are in question in the, in, the, in the bill that you mentioned. So those four students, like I said, you would have to evaluate how how the reaction to their playing in their local teams would come back on them. But then, even if it's just only four, depending on how far they pursue their, their sports uh, you know, goals, as long as they are competing against you know, people who are against girls who are, let's say, um, training at the same level as they are, so obviously, because you're transgender doesn't guarantee that you're always going to win, because obviously there's a lot of factors beyond that, so how hard you train. Um, but if you have you know, a transgender woman and a biological woman with the same level of training regimen, then you can easily conclude that the trans woman is going to have an advantage and is going to win out most of the time. So there's only four in the state. Um, so maybe that's not a problem. That, that is not a problem that even in the most permissive trans policy, this isn't a problem that you know, the vast majority of sports leagues across the country are gonna to have to deal with. But once you start aggregating, going up the, the chain of accomplishments, then you're going to see those transgender athletes get a more prominent role in the victories of these, of these you know, sports, competitions. In Connecticut, two transgender high school track athletes began competing in the women's team in 2017. They did that on 2017, 2018, and 2019. And in that time, they took 15 state track championship titles. In the previous year, talking about two transgender 
students. In the previous year, those titles were held by nine different girls. So those are life paths that get altered. Those are, you know, those could have been scholarships for those girls. That's harm. So what I would get back to is that we have a balance. Well, in one sense, there is a lot we can do to accommodate transgender people. And like I said, to give them support and uh, perhaps make life comfortable for them. But I think there is a line that at some point we need to draw. And I think sports is, is where we have to say, okay, now this is intruding on other people's interests and well-being too. And we have to balance those competing harms. I'm not sure where, where, where we should stand. Obviously, this is a conversation that is kind of in its early stages. Well, this is going to be discussed for a long time, but um, I think I think we need to not lose sight of the fact that there's more than one uh, there's more than one side to this. We'll continue our conversation with our friend Holden, subscriber and longtime supporter of Hertel, right after this. talking to our friend Holden, who wanted some time to push back on the way we covered this issue. Uh, the eternal struggle in a free society is where one person's rights stop and another person's rights start and the conflict between them. We could discuss that all day. That's the heart of this issue. But let's talk on the practical side just real quick to put a bow on this. Uh, we talk about drawing lines. I, I'm, I'm agreeing that we got to be careful about com- competitive balance is not the right word, but you know, to make com- competition fair, especially for younger children, keeping things fair for underage. And once they get to adults, it's kind of a stickier situation. The thing is, if you're going to draw a line, somebody's got to enforce it. So the question is, what is the proper enforcement? I, if, if, we take, if we take away the transgender aspect of this and just talk about it in the abstract, I'm very leery anytime that we're going to say we should have some sweeping legislation over a specific problem. Like I agree with Governor Cox. He got a lot of grief about it, but is, is state power the right method to address a situation that affects four people? Uh, the Leah Thompson situation, you have the 36th ranked female swimmer who even in the event she won, she's like 10 seconds off the record time in her event. Uh, is this something that's appropriate for a national level or a state level legislation? Or is this something that school boards, local facilities, uh, NCAA, in that case, that we should leave to them? to do it that that's a harder conversation of like okay if we're going to have rules who's going to enforce them and then i have questions irregardless of the transgender aspect of it of is this a good use of governmental power and government authority and are we going to write this specific so that it doesn't have unintentional harm i know people will say slippery slope this could continue maybe it could but you've got to write legislation in black and white and i get concerned when we start writing legislation for four people, one specific swimmer, two people in Connecticut. That's my concern. What do you think about something like that? Well, the, I do think it's, it's, it is a, a matter of fit for legislation. I mean, obviously, we already have a civil rights act that deals with sports teams, you know, for girls and um, what rights do they have. If, if these were not transgender students, then absolutely the government would take action. We are sort of, I don't want to say giving it a pass, but we are, uh, I guess, we have muddled the issue because 
we now have we now have a you know as 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 it came up during uh, during the confirmation hearing, we're having a a sort of a debate over what a woman is. Is a woman is being a woman something that exists in your mind, or is it something that exists in your in your physiology? So I think that's something that we're going to have to clarify as a society because I think a lot of the conflict we're seeing is because we don't we don't have an agreement on that, and one side thinks one thing and one side thinks the other. You mentioned that it's. Well, it's only for it's only these four students. Well, you know, we're only just now dipping our toes into this issue. So some people have to be the first. If these transgender students are allowed to um, play in the team that they choose and presumably, you know, excel at it, um, win, win any number of competitions over their biological women, then that's going to open the door to more transgender athletes to do the same thing. So do we want to deal with this now in its infancy? I would say yes. Let's deal with this now. Let's clarify this now. It will be much easier to do this now than to wait, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years when there's a lot more common um, participation from transgender athletes in sports, in my opinion, displacing uh, biological women from their rightful places on on those sports competitions. I would say yes. Let's let's deal with it now. Um, our friend Holden, he wanted a little bit of time to respond. I offered he didn't. This is what we like to do. We like to have uh, grown folk discussions, even on touchy issues. Do some active listening, hear each other out. You can find him online, Holden one one four on the Twitter. He's been a good friend for a while, my friend. I appreciate your time today, and we'll keep talking about this and a whole bunch of other touchy issues. And I appreciate you listening. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. You know, we always try to end on a happy or a good note or at least a lighter hearted note because we have to cover some really serious topics like we had to do today. Very serious topics, very sober topics. This is some good news. Uh, Fortnite, one of the most popular games in the world, highly popular online game, has now raised over 100 million U.S. dollars for relief efforts in the Ukraine. This is from PC Gaming. Since the launch of Chapter 3 Season 2, Epic has been donating all proceeds from the Direct Relief, UNICEF, and UN World Food Program and the UN Refugee Agency. And the company has now added the World Central Kitchen. That's um, Chef Andre- Jose Andreas's organization. Does great work. To the list of organizations that's supporting all proceeds from real money purchases in Fortnite will go to support those organizations. Uh, until April the 3rd, April. Epic says it's getting those funds to the supported charities as quickly as we can. We're not waiting for the actual funds to come into our platform and payment partners, which can take a while, depending on the As transactions are reported, we log them and send the funds to humanitarian relief organizations within days. Epic's Fortnite donation effort began on March the 20th, and by March 21st, the company announced it had raised $36 million on March 22nd. In total, it reached $50 million, and by March the 25th, the number was over 70 million and now well into march 
Uh, they're up over $100 million. Amazing. The Ukraine donations have been enough to draw a word of gratitude from Ukrainian Vice President, Vice Minister, excuse me, Mikhailo Fedorov, Fedorov, Mikhailo Fedorov, Mikhailo Fedorov, who tweeted, thank you, Epic Games, for understanding that people's lives are not a game. Your support is critically important to us. Great story. Love how gamers. This is about the fourth or fifth time now we've covered one of the major gamies recreating and raising real massive amounts of money. Uh, it's a community. It's a dedicated community. It's a community that really, really cares. And it's amazing to watch what they do. Okay, that'll do it for her tell for today. Uh, wherever you're watching or listening, make sure you're subscribing. It's very important. Make sure you get everything that we're doing here and it makes sure that you don't miss a thing. Every weekday, Heard Tell, brand new episodes. Every afternoon, Good Talks. Those are the interview portions come out as well. We also do twice on Sunday. On Sunday, that's the recap show. People seem to really like. Also working on some more deep dives. There's 36 of those on there. Six of those deep dives, you can look for them. Looking to get a few more. I'm really excited about some of the guests coming up in the next few days. So stay with us however you're watching. Also, Big Talker uh, Network. If you haven't yet, they've got a brand new app that includes a lot of the Herd Tell Show content. Uh, Big Talker Network, just go whatever your app store, iTunes store is, go to Big Talker Network, type that in. Brand new app, well built. Our friend Yalilosowski put that together. Also gives you all the other great content from Big Talker Network that we're happy to partner with. That's our radio partner. Uh, you can also catch the show on their listen live tab you can listen to it on the app when it streams every day 7 a.m with a replay at 3 p.m and it'll have links to the back episodes as well make sure you check that out also on the facebook page so till we talk to you again we hope you are well we hope you are well fed and we'll see you tomorrow for more hurt tell all the music on hurt tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.